You're listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsu-Mellish. Joining us today is Professor Christina Spohr, who is a professor in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics, and her most recent book, Post-Wall, Post-Square, Rebuilding the World After 1989, is a topic we'll be discussing today. So, Christina, thank you for joining us today. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the fall of the USSR and the monumentous event that transitioned our world from a Cold War order to our current global international order. And I want to look at that event, the collapse of the USSR, in a more comparative way than often we do when we're discussing the fall of the Soviet Union, which is a discussion which is often very much focused on the European experience. I want to open that out and make it more of a global and a more comparative discussion. Because in the late 1980s, we saw the world's two biggest socialist economies trying to transition themselves into the global market. First, you had Gorbachev's Glasnost and Perestroika initiatives, but you also had Deng Xiaoping's opening up of China to the global economy in the late 1980s. So I want to start with the question of comparing those two initiatives. What were the differences between those two initiatives, which led to one being such a success that China is now a major global competitor for the United States, whereas the other created such a degree of instability within the country that inevitably led to its collapse. Yeah, I have picked an important point up in my my book, which is really about looking at this period as a dual exit um, from the Cold War. Exit from the Cold War uh, in, in Europe, that is connected to the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse of uh, of Soviet communism and the wider empire at large. Um, In fact, in its end result, even it's tied to a a change in world order in terms of the end of the bipolarity as we have known it to be frozen in time for 40 years. But of course, in Asia, we see a completely different uh, exit from the Cold War, where we see China, the People's Republic of China, um, with the Communist Party at its helm, uh, remaining a one-party state and and pushing for an authoritarian uh, capitalist country. And what we are looking at um, in the late 1980s, we, we see this development of, of two different socialist models, um, both with planned economies, but the opening out that they are both seeking towards um, the world economy, also in the context of uh, globalization, having had its onset after the collapse of Bretton Woods from the 70s, um, We are seeing that Gorbachev, through his perestroika and glasnost uh, policies, wanted to reinvent communism, wanted in in an ideological sense, go back to the roots of Marxism and Leninism, hoping to uh, really rejuvenate and regalvanize the country uh, by undertaking restructuring politically and economically. So it meant uh, devolution politically, although remaining within a one-party structure, uh, but devolution to the to the periphery, to the to the republics of power, but in particular tied to uh, economic reforms, to an opening out to some kind of market, and of course to the world. And he did this across the board, at large in the country, across all sectors, all in one go, which is very different uh, to the approach taken by Deng Xiaoping uh, in in China, uh, who was fascinated uh, by. Uh, his trip to the United States in the in the 80s um, and and by 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 the spark and he took the approach of undertaking economic liberalization without political liberalization and to do so also very much in ring fenced areas almost like sort of economic bubbles in uh, particularly sort out areas on in coastal towns 
And so we see, you know, boom emerging uh, and change emerging uh, in, in, as I say, ring fence territories, whereas Gorbachev tried to do reform on all, uh, on all fronts. Uh, the aim, of course, for both was the same. It was really about uh, the reinvention of communism uh, through approaches uh, of adaptation uh, and, and modification to get to uh, this, this reinvention. Um, and of course, if we talk about this, you know, what is a success, what is a failure, then we can talk about this purely in terms of power. And as you rightly highlighted, what we see with the Soviet Union as a result, the end result actually of uh, reforming, re-strengthening, making more competitive the Soviet Union, the result in effect is the collapse of that state, uh, of that empire, uh, of, of that system. Uh, whereas uh, you could say over the long term, China taking its own course with a very long term perspective, a gradual uh, change uh, towards becoming a global economic superpower with now under Xi Jinping uh, ambitions by 2050 uh, to be, uh, you know, the leading ordering power or certainly one of the big three at minimum uh, is really a, a very, very different approach. It's sort of uh, an own trajectory uh, pursued uh, with its own timing, uh, completely um, irrespective of what anybody else may think. In fact, Deng Xiaoping had said in 1989, not just about that China would bide its time and, and look, uh, but um, if I may quote, he said, we don't care what others say about us. The only thing we really care about is a good environment for developing ourselves so long as history eventually proves the superiority of the Chinese socialist system, that's enough. And of course, in some ways you could say, well, it was all about holding on to the Chinese socialist system all the while, while opening out to the world economy and becoming in that sense, uh, a, a capitalist powerhouse, a capitalist um, superpower. Now, of course, finding expression through the belt and road initiative. So here we see communist reinvention in that sort of sense being completely successful. And in terms of, uh, if you look at the uh, balance of power and world order, uh, we can say that uh, if in a bipolar order, the second pillar fell away, namely the Soviet Union, uh, then certainly that unipolar moment of the United States, whether you want to ring fence it as something very short or whether you want to see it as a long moment that is now being challenged as both the new uh, revisionist Russia, but especially China, are looking for what they call a post-West world order. They want to challenge American hegemony also in terms of, uh, of values and what America stands for, uh, you know, the so-called rules-based liberal order, uh, if you so want. Uh, China uh, also talks about, you know, really this desire of wanting to be accepted as one of the big powers in a polycentric, in a multipolar uh, world. And that is really important for us to understand that we talk about the end of the Cold War. But if we talk about the end of the Cold War and the end of an era, a 40-year uh, uh, epoch, um, then we close history. If we take the view, as I suggest, to talk about the dual exit, two exits from the Cold War, we probably get a better understanding also of where we are today, because that allows us to pursue uh, in our own mind game, these different trajectories. The exit in Asia, that was very different from that exit uh, in Europe, where, of course, you know, if you now think, for example, about Gorbachev getting the Peace Nobel Prize, 
From a Western perspective, Gorbachev wasn't a failure. The, the perception that there was, um, you know, Gorbachev talked about a rapprochement, a mutual uh, getting closer together on issues of values. The West didn't quite see it that way. They actually felt that the Soviet Union under Gorbachev, in that sense, Gorbachev really is an aberration, is increasingly uh, properly aligning to what the West sees as its values and its norms, but also, of course, as signed up by everybody in the United Nations. And with that sort of sense that Gorbachev agrees on common universal democratic values as he spoke out in 1988 in December at the United Nations, there was a sense that in that sense, yes, the world is moving in a new direction because people's eyes weren't really that much on China at that point. I mean, they were aware uh, of, of uh, the economic reforms, but China was still seen as a sort of big socialist developing state. Uh, but the second pillar in that bipolar order was uh, coming closer and was beginning, it seemed, to underwrite the values that the, that the Americans, the West, felt they had stood for already long before, and that now one could move into a more cooperative uh, world order um, where, in some ways, uh, under the aegis of um, international law, this authority, more authority perhaps to the United Nations, the two superpowers, although still in some kind of competitive co-development would pursue, let's say, competitive cooperation in a peaceful manner. Uh, and that in that sense, a new world order would be uh, perhaps a two-pillar order where the two would not be paralyzing something like the UN uh, for ideological reasons. I want to pick up on this idea because in the late 80s and possibly even in the very early 90s, although at that point, it was already clear that the Soviet Union was in very difficult trouble. There was an effort by Gorbachev to transition that USA-USSR relationship from a purely antagonistic one to one where they would be a steward of international order together. And of course, the USA thought of that as a junior-senior partner relationship because of the massive level of wealth and economic disparity between the USA and the USSR by the 1980s but how would that collaborative international stewardship relationship between those two countries have looked like if the USSR had been able to stabilize itself and continue yeah so first of all of course what is so interesting in the 80s is although you have this uh almost I wouldn't say Janus face but you have to sort of question you know is Reagan a cold warrior is Reagan a peacemaker when you begin to see this rapprochement under under Reagan and Gorbachev because in some ways Reagan needed that Gorbachev figure to tango with because let's take the peacemaker side of Reagan who wanted you know a nuclear free uh, more peaceful world from a position of strength admittedly of course Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernenko they kept dying on him there wasn't even an interlocutor to go with and that's why you know Gorbachev is very interesting because he was offering that other side and it wasn't it was also a combustible relationship every now and then and they had this sort of series of summits and on the second summit in Reykjavik you know the left after a bust up but at the same time that also really both thought about thinking the unthinkable namely can you move to a nuclear free world because of course one of the hallmarks of the cold war is you know strategic arms is the fear of nuclear armageddon which affects mankind which affects the world so those two in their engagement with each other had led to this sort of diffusing of that antagonism. 
uh, not just ideologically, but also really critically in terms of uh, arms reduction, disarmament, in fact, policies, you know, the INF treaty, but then also this desire to work towards start. And even if I leave out the fact that, you know, once Bush comes to power, he initially turns actually to China because he saw here, you know, great demographic and, and economic potential and because he had experience in China, so he wanted to look first what could be done there in the, in the early months of 1989, rather than just being, you know, a follow on uh, Republican president from Reagan and number two becoming number one from vice president to president, you know, everybody wants to put their own stamps on affairs. Of course, we see this rapprochement after trust is established in this context of Eastern European upheaval in 1989 and visit China door slam shut after uh, the Tiananmen massacre uh, in June 1989, so we must not forget that. It is much more difficult for America to focus on China, certainly in a public a kind of way, and also there's a sense we really need to work with Gorbachev because we're beginning to see these massive topographical um, transformative changes in Eastern in Eastern Europe. This, of course, also symbolically the the um, fall of the Berlin Wall, that that disappearance of the Iron Curtain, and here we see now the seeds of beginning that new cooperation. I mean, really interestingly. Uh, irrespective of, of um, you know, Russian policy today about, you know, being stabbed in the back and promises made over NATO enlargement here or there, the point is that German unification that had been an insuperable uh, issue during the Cold War with these two divided states, that it seemed that this problem will never be resolved, gets resolved uh, in, in terms of the international settlement uh, in a small circle of the two victor powers and the two Germanys, but especially America, Russia, and the West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl in an incredibly cooperative spirit. Uh, and it, of course, each side pursues particular national interests. The Germans want unification as fast as possible to bring that about, uh, once it's really on the cards. Uh, and um, Germany and America have been so-called partners in leadership ever since the declaration of Bush in May 1989. Uh, which actually, you know, hurt a little bit the British who felt that, you know, now that was undermining that special relationship. And then, of course, uh, both Bush and uh, Kohl are cultivating also particularly good uh, bilateral relations with Gorbachev, who, of course, given his own po power political position and his great economic problems, despite undertaking structural reforms, uh, you know, is, is constantly sort of struggling to, to keep at the helm of his country, uh, being challenged from within the party, especially communist hardliners, but also more radical reformers such as Yeltsin, they work cooperatively to come out with what is for all sides the best compromise in terms of bringing about that German unification and thereby full German sovereignty. And that entailed questions of Red Army troop withdrawal from East German soil, and of course also to which alliances Germany should belong. And the interesting thing is that it's actually something that both sides can sign up to because actually um, everybody's concerned what would a Germany be like if it was left unrestrained, a Germany unbound. Everybody has historical fears and especially the Soviets. So German-Soviet reconciliation is absolutely crucial and cruel call through creating trust, creating really a political friendship, a genuine friendship with Gorbachev, but also offering the lubricator of deep pockets of Deutschmarks in the end, uh, up to almost 100 billion Deutschmarks, um, you know, in some ways, checkbook diplomacy combined with friendship and trust allows to forge Soviet 
German reconciliation and including German unification inside NATO. And that brings about, uh, you know, a, a situation that is mutually acceptable. The Americans remain a European power, by that also a counterbalance to a potentially unbound German, uh, what Margaret Thatcher called, could have been a fourth Reich. What horror. Yeah, that was sort of visions of the Western European victor powers. Even France was, you know, worried about how Germany may behave. But of course, also from the Soviets' perspective, who always spoke about when the Nazis had come and invaded their country, 20 million Soviet dead. So also from Gorbachev's perspective, in the end, by going with his normative approach, namely self-determination for the Germans, and self-determination when it came to the choice of alliance, based on that principle, he was willing to let the Germans choose, and he knew it would be NATO, but at least that Germany would be bound. So it was also the least worst uh, scenario in the end for Gorbachev. He could sign up to it. But it was also because everybody was working in terms of goodwill, a spirit of cooperation. And that's what they wanted to carry into the future. Into a future, you know, Francis Fukuyama talked about, you know, the end of history, the, you know, that, that there will be liberal democratic governments. Of course, the Soviet Union also was undergoing these changes within ever faster towards a liberal market economy, but also uh, more democratization inside the Soviet Union, especially also once the wider Soviet empire, the satellite states had undergone their own transformations in their own right, which Gorbachev had not stopped. But we see really a one picture perfect moment, namely once uh, the, 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 the Soviet client state, uh, former Soviet client state, Iraq invaded Kuwait. You know, this happened just around the time when German unification was about to be wrapped up. And here you have a moment when by trying to use the UN, by trying to use the UN Security Council, which is no longer paralyzed by ideological antagonism, you see this idea of what you know, Bush called the new world order. There's no law of the jungle, but we really have law and order. We are working within the framework of international law. And I now don't want to get involved in all sorts of historiographical debate about you know, why the Gulf War came about. The, the point I want to highlight is here, the Soviet Union, Gorbachev and Bush worked together, including this, you know, acceptance by China, which also didn't put a spanner in the work. And so without the paralysis on the Security Council, there was a sense to adhere to the international law, to adhere to uh, and safeguard the territorial integrity of small Kuwait that had been invaded by an aggressor, that aggressor should be pushed back. And they could all agree that that should be done either through sanctions regimes or if that wouldn't work, if Saddam wouldn't go uh, willingly, there would be a coalition formed under UN auspices. And of course, in terms of if you think who is the power that projects most at this point still, it, and in particular, it is militarily, financially, logistically, the United States. And it was also historically an opportune moment. Consider the peace dividend of the end of the Cold War, considerations of massive American troop withdrawals from Germany, actually because of this crisis in the Gulf, those troops rather than being pulled back to America in the first instance get put into the Middle East, right? And so you see actually military action, uh, almost a kind of peace enforcement and an enforcement certainly of international law, a very rapid, narrowly confined mission that is undertaken uh, in complete agreement between the two superpowers. That is a moment of cooperative bipolarity. 
And it wasn't about regime change. It wasn't about exporting Western values. Nobody was telling the Kuwaitis they can't have the Emir back because he isn't a Democrat. And nobody was saying we have to go uh, to Baghdad uh, and get rid of Saddam Hussein. That just was not on the cards for the Bush senior uh, White House. So that, in some ways, would have been a model to pursue uh, in terms of that uh, cooperative bipolar or two-pillar structure uh, under the framework of international law. That was also these dreams of the uh, better, the building a better world uh, and to create a commonwealth uh, of, of uh, global nations. Yeah, that was sort of uh, the idea. Um, but of course, when you then see the sudden collapse of the Soviet Union, the second pillar falls away. And what you remain, what, what remains uh, is a post-Soviet space with effectively a truncated Russia, uh, still, of course, uh, in some ways, a, a Eurasian empire going all the way from St. Petersburg on the Baltic Sea uh, to Vladivostok in the Pacific, but with the periphery either disappeared or much in a much looser uh, way linked to that new Russia under Yeltsin uh, through the Commonwealth of Independent States. What was it about the USSR, in your estimation, that made it unable to contain Gorbachev's reforms? Because if you were to look at the two countries, China had a much more difficult job in that it also had to develop as well as transition its economy and, and developing without instability is one of the most difficult things that a country can often do whereas the USSR it was already industrialized okay it didn't have the standard of living necessarily of Western Europe but it already had industrial capacity what was it about Gorbachev that meant that when the plan began to unravel and began to increase instability within the USSR that he was in a way ideologically dedicated to this project that he continued because of course in the 50s khrushchev attempted to instigate a major reform of the ussr and maybe it was because he was contained by more hardline stalinists that remained like molotov who weren't willing to go as far as khrushchev wanted to go but when the hungarian uprising occurred and when instability started to appear within the ussr and the eastern bloc Khrushchev pulls back from his reform measures and says, okay, no, we're reinstating the, some of the old policies and we're going back to how things were previously. Whereas Gorbachev did not seem willing to do this. It was very much, we're going to get through the medicine of reform because it, it will work. He was someone who truly did want to reform communism. His, his long-term goal was not that the system would collapse. So what was it both about the country of the USSR and the man Gorbachev that this uh, pathway was in from the beginning? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So if you take structural explanations, you have colleagues who focus on that the Soviet Union is a multinational, multi-ethnic state that, of course, in some ways, it it's, uh, suffers uh, over time from some kind of imperial overstretch in terms of that, you know, the republics that are on the peripheries, not all of them, of course, are voluntarily in the Soviet Union in the first place. You have to remember that some of the most advanced, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the three Baltic republics, um, they effectively annexed into the Soviet Union uh, in the aftermath of the Hitler-Stalin Pact, and then, you know, completely incorporated at the end of uh, World War II with, you know, vast uh, 
chunks of the uh, intelligentsia, you know, packed off to gulags while a Russification effort was taking place, an industrialization effort. So, you know, you have from the outset also uh, republics in a country um, that want nothing more than eventually uh, re-establish their independence. This remains in some ways, you know, a thorn in the side, however small they are, but they're in a strategically important position uh, by, the, by the Baltic Sea. And of course, you know, think about Kaliningrad today, an exclave of Russia, but you know, uh, a port, a strategically important uh, port on, on that coast now tucked between Lithuania and Poland. So you have to sort of think about it, what it mattered to Moscow to have particular terrains. Then you have to think of republics and where you know this idea of creating the Soviet um, citizen, uh, the Soviet man uh, in a country where religion is the opium of the people. Many of those republics, of course, um, uh, are effectively Muslim republics. Uh, and you have to think that um, after the Iranian revolution of 1979, there was great worry uh, in the Soviet Union that that might have an impact on society uh, and the people uh, in the way they will sort of galvanize uh, and use uh, religion uh, as a way of um, also in national terms uh, reaffirm and reassert themselves. So you have to think that, you know, the uh, weakness was always felt on the periphery and one might take the structural view over a long time. It's very difficult to hold such an empire together. Plus, once you add the satellite states, you know, um, there is always a danger of imperial overstretch. There's always a danger that structurally uh, this is inherently weak and at some point will collapse. But you could take the view, you know, this was, you know, created after 1917, uh, but it took uh, more than 70 years. Um, so, you know, in terms of the timing, there must be other factors. You could also say, well, of course, you know, it is a, a, a modernist uh, ideological project also since 1917, in some ways, you know, preceding uh, the Cold War as, as we speak of it. Um, and there was inherent flaws in both how it was run politically in, in terms of uh, the control and, and corruption and and, you know, how people climbed the greasy pole and, and dominance uh, of Russians. Uh, in the system, I mean, you could take, pick up all sorts of uh, issues, uh, and also that actually a plant economy in and of itself is completely fraught, especially once you move out of that first phase of industrialization and the competition in the world, uh, in, in a world of in open markets, and even uh, with a Western world in the 1970s, feeling actually that they were on the losing side because Bretton Woods had collapsed, you had the oil crisis, you had the North-South conflict, all these kinds of things. Um, you know, there's actually a deep sense of, of Western crisis, and maybe the Soviets with their oil and gas that they now start exporting will do much better. But ultimately, they lost out when it, and when it came to chips and genes, right? I mean, in terms of uh, the high-tech uh, revolution. That's where the, the Eastern Bloc, uh, the Soviet Bloc, uh, fell completely behind. And that actually made the socioeconomic malaise uh, and, and the sentiments uh, inside the block that people really, you know, uh, almost uh, the civil society, if you so want, disinvest from believing and, and, and giving the, the leaders any credibility uh, disappears because we really have uh, uh, this, this, um, this huge gap emerging. So those are uh, structural uh, systemic uh, explanations where you could say at some point it just comes to a head. But I think this is really not enough to explain. We have to really think of what is the significance here of the change agent. And Gorbachev actually is a change agent, not just in terms of um, that diffusing of the Cold War or going as far as saying, you know, it's all the Gorbachev factor. Uh, you know, this wonderful phrase used by, by, by Archie Brown to, to explain uh, Gorbachev. 
but also um, in the sense that because he takes, he has this philosophical outlook. He wrote this book, Perestroika, to explain to both his domestic audience and the foreign audience what he was envisaging. Because it's all going back to the roots, because he's holding on to uh, his ideological framework, he wants this political and economic restructuring in a sort of wholesome way, uh, all, all over way. And of course, his ideal society, given the, the travels he had made, what he wanted to create was a so-called socialist democracy in the truest uh, uh, form of the word. And in his mind, he had something akin to a society like Sweden. But he didn't understand that Sweden, of course, although social democrats happen to be in power, is a, a, a pluralist democracy, a multi-party democracy, a, a, a capitalist state. Yes, of course, with a strong social network. Um, yeah, so it's not like neoliberal capitalism. Uh, but, you know, in the most Western sense, in that sense, a, a Western democracy. That was sort of um, his idea in his mind, and that's what he was pushing for. But of course, nobody had a blueprint. How do you move out of a planned economy to that kind of, of, uh, of system? And then you have to always bear in mind this philosophical outlook of Gorbachev's, which, because it was tied to what kind of society he would want in a philosophical way, it entailed the abolition of the Brezhnev doctrine and the Sinatra doctrine in the sense of freedom of choice. What do I mean? That in regard to your satellite set, he was encouraging reforms in those uh, regimes in those countries, uh, Poland, Hungary, East Germany, and so forth as well. He hoped that people would understand that, of course, one party where everybody is a member and everybody galvanizes their thoughts, that's the way forward, and they will reform from within. Yes, and in fact, in part, you see this, for example, in Hungary. It's actually the reform communists who drive change, who drive an, a negotiated revolution almost up to a point from above, considering that you know, we had that revolution from below from 56 that had been uh, you know, crushed by the tanks. But a crucial difference in these two reinvention stories of communism in, in the Soviet Union uh, and China is the application of the use of force. For Gorbachev in the wider context, and now let's leave out for a moment uh, the Tiflis affair and at Lithuania in 1991, you know, holding in some ways uh, this, the Soviet Union together. But about Tiflis, actually, Gorbachev himself didn't give the order. He didn't know about that, that um, those plans by the local party bosses and, and the military. Uh, and Shivat Nazis, for minister, of course, was uh, from, from Georgia. So, you know, it's, it's all a bit shocking. Um, you have to think, here we see because somebody is not willing to use force, how much that the system actually relied on the application of force. And that is absolutely crucial for our understanding of China. It is not just a choice, no liberal reform going hand in hand with economic reform, and thereby because they pursue this to their final conclusion to this present day, actually showing how misguided it was for Americans to think and other Western people to think once you have capitalism, democracy automatically comes because people who want material goods, who want a, a, a good socioeconomic standing, will also want a political stake. Clearly, the Chinese feel different uh, about this, right? But the crucial difference is in Tiananmen Square, the tanks rolled, martial law was implied, and with brute force, any kind of protest was crushed, and not just in Beijing, also in other parts of China. But in the, uh, in the Soviet context and in the Eastern Bloc, 
this did not happen, neither by the national regimes, uh, nor did the Red Army, uh, nor was the Red Army deployed from their bases, because after all, remember, the Red Army was stationed all around Eastern Europe. That was in some ways, you know, the Soviet buffer zone, if they thought about it in terms of military planning. The Brezhnev doctrine, as it was called after Prague 1968, was not applied. And that has something to do with, it's a Gorbachev choice not to do so. And that ties in with that, you know, Glasnost, yes, it's about transparency and allowing critique, and he found it very difficult to live with that because he got critique left, right, and center. But in particular, the unwillingness to, to use the army, the military industrial complex uh, in the satellite states uh, and even inside the country with, with these two exceptions. And I'm happy to explain why those occur. But the point is, on the broader scheme of things, China clamped down immediately with the first little bit of sense that there could be too much protest, too much visible protest. After all, when Gorbachev came to visit China in May 1989, the students were all out there. He wasn't even taken to them because the Chinese were so worried that the students who admired Gorbachev as the ultimist of reform, you know, would suddenly see their hero. They didn't want uh, this to be allowed. And it is really telling that the crashing of Tiananmen Square happens on the very same day that in Poland, in the first three elections, people go to vote. So you have these two very different uh, experiences, one related to the Soviet bloc and the one related to China. I want to challenge this idea of a purely abstract use of force, however, because what we have in the final months of the USSR is Gorbachev is challenged by the hardliners they effectively take him and remove him out of power and contain him in his holiday residence in the south of the USSR. And there is a, a military coup attempt that Boris Yeltsin and others are battling in Moscow. There are deployable armies aligned with the hardliners who are here to essentially try and put things back to the way they were. And that failed for a number of reasons and I just want to look at why possibly that failed because the hardliners in the USSR also had the ability in part the army the actual the soldiers were unwilling to fire on citizens who were who were protesting in favor of Gorbachev and Yeltsin and I think that's something to remember is that although the USSR collapsed and it led to a massive decrease in the standard of living for people for a decade and would lead to the revanchist position that Russia ends up in now. At that moment, those reforms that Gorbachev were passing was incredibly popular. And that's in part why they were able to create a popular resistance to this to this military coup. And also the military, the lower level uh, members of the military were not always willing to go along with it. And some of them, some of even the higher level military members ended up backing Yeltsin. If it was all about this ability to clamp down on on dissent in a purely military fashion, why was it that the coup in the Soviet Union failed and they weren't able to reinstall order? Was it just that things had already gone too far by the point that it started? Was it that the reforms were too popular and they didn't have the will to crush the dissent or was it that the actors who were in charge of that coup weren't willing to take the radical steps that would have been necessary in order to win it they weren't willing to take full control of the state instead they differed and didn't take the actions necessary 
I think actually that dithering point is a very important point, which is something historians are still looking at because historians are still interested to find out really what was the relationship uh, in terms of what the coup plotters wanted and how they related to Gorbachev. Because remember, uh, in the in the fall uh, of of 1990, when Gorbachev is being increasingly challenged by the hardliners, also in, in particular because they are looking on with horror, but that the that the Soviets are um, you know engaging with the Americans uh, in the Gulf. I mean, the, the hard from the hardline faction, Primakov conducts uh, his own missions uh, on behalf of Gorbachev, trying to make you know private peace deals with with Saddam Hussein, as I said, you know, for my client's sake. But Shevardnadze can't take it that there's a sort of parallel foreign policy being conducted and he said I fear for dictators and Shevardnadze resigns to the shock of the of, of western uh, governments because of course he also was a devil they knew but he was also a known reformist he, he was a representative of Georgia he represented everything the new Soviet Union in some ways was about and there was a real sense you know he was a person who whom you could trust when you made agreements you you could they would hold so he resigns and Gorbachev surrounds himself with a whole bunch of of ministers uh, from the hardline faction and it's them them uh, who are uh, among uh, the key coup plotters and you know there's actually speculation that because they were from the Gorbachev entourage they just felt if by by keeping Gorbachev you know almost hostage in his in his dacha they're just putting enough pressure on Gorbachev that he doesn't pursue this new union treaty that Gorbachev was about to have signed uh, excluding the Baltic states who did not participate in those negotiations, but the other republics, in particular um, Russia, led by Boris Yeltsin at this point uh, in time, Kazakhstan and Belarus and Ukraine, if they would sign up to this new union treaty, a looser federation, the coup plotters feared that that's, that's the end of the Soviet Union as we know it, and we can't let this happen. But actually, their desire to you know, see Gorbachev killed or what other proposals you made that you know, could have been uh, applied here, precisely perhaps didn't apply because actually, of course, they were in part of the government with Gorbachev and they just wanted to maneuver Gorbachev back on the right line. And now you have to remember what had happened through the restructuring and political devolution in the Soviet Union with the emergence of these congresses of people's deputies the Russian Congress of People's Deputies had made Yeltsin president of Russia. So in Moscow, you don't have just the mayor of Moscow, you also have the president of Russia who has a popular mandate through this new body where he really can say, I have been elected by the people, whereas Gorbachev, the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, is a party boss, yes, for the overarching structure of the Soviet Union, yes, sitting in the Kremlin, but without a popular mandate. And I'm not saying that, you know, there's sort of a Russian populism all the way from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok and in all Siberian towns and whatnot, but in these uh, core places of power uh, of, of, uh, of Russia, uh, it is Yeltsin who's a symbol for, you know, the new Russia in the sense that he has a popular mandate and of course because he's not a member of the Communist Party anymore, uh, he sees himself as much more reformist and it's him when he when, when, you know, while Gorbachev is stuck in the dacha and the coup plotters uh, are not really entirely sure how it's going to play out, Yeltsin, as the man who speaks for the people, also gets the military to side with him. So the man with the popular mandate really emerges as a strong person, and in some ways that is the death knell for the Soviet Union, because although Yeltsin technically looked like he wanted to sign up to the Union Treaty, he changes and attack Yes, Gorbachev returns, but again, you know, he returns, he doesn't really go out to the people, he isn't really a people's man, he withdraws back into the Kremlin, and there's several moments when Yeltsin really talks down at Gorbachev as a sort of broken character almost, 
uh, you know, with this new galvanized sense of power of him, you know, having managed that, that, that coup fairly quickly. And then it's, of course, almost because we have then these referenda in the various republics, where instead of wanting to sign up to a new union treaty, there is agreement that they're all going to opt out. That's why, of course, it's a peaceful collapse of the Soviet Union, because in some ways they all sign out to then sign up to something new, which is this commonwealth of independent states led by Russia. But, you know, what is the Soviet Union, what is Gorbachev's position without the core, namely Russia? The moment Russia opts out of the Soviet Union, there is no longer a Soviet Union. Yeah, but, the, but at the heart really lies that, you know, also the coup plotters didn't have really a clear plan and the way, of course, they had been brought in into the Gorbachev circle and that the way that how that whole dynamic worked versus a president of Russia who had a popular mandate. And it's very difficult to argue with that, especially when then your military also sides with him. So in the end, the coup plotters have nothing. So I, I want to get on to the transition of Russia into um into the global system that we have post cold war and maybe where where there were failures uh, that led to our current situation and the standoff between the the west and a newly uh, revanchist russia but first of all can you explain to the audience a little bit about how us relations begin to shift with the newly emergent russia after gorbachev's resignation and once yeltsin becomes the key player and then once we've done that we can then sort of get into uh, how we transitioned Russia into the into the world order. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very interesting how all Western leaders, but especially some protagonists I already talked about, who are particularly important for the Soviet Union and Russia, namely America and Germany. Germany because they have the money, if you so want. And remember, the Soviet Union, or rather now the collapsed Soviet Union, uh, in, in socioeconomic terms, is, is in fact a failing state. They need food aid and they need financial uh, injections without end, they need foreign investment, anything that will help out, uh, something that Yeltsin chooses to do, namely shock therapy, which already we have little examples uh, in Poland, Hungary, uh, yeah, in all these Eastern European countries. But of course, the Soviet Union, uh, a much, or the former Soviet space, a much larger uh, area. And now just think about it, quick mind game, uh, in East Germany, to get East Germany to the same level as West Germany, it has taken 30 years, it has taken something called solidarity tax, it has cost a trillion uh, euros. Yeah, we're talking about huge money for an, a small area with 16 million people. Now extrapolate that on a country the size uh, of Russia, even if the West wanted to pump all its money into that to make, you know, this partnership somehow work. I don't even know what, you, what figure you would put on that. And that would, that would mean that they would have to be completely in line uh, in an agreement when it comes to national interests. Now, what is very interesting is that uh, the Western leaders, uh, especially Kohl and, 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 uh, and Bush, to the very end hung on to Gorbachev because they felt you know, they, they, they can somehow make arrangements with them, they can work in a peaceful manner, uh, they can even you know, help, whatever. They very quickly shift fields and actually this, this, this shift just as the shift from Soviet Russia being transformed into uh, Russia, for example, in terms of the seat of the Security Council, it's, it's automatic almost that Russia becomes a successor state, although, of course, diplomatic relations need to be established with all the Soviet successor states. So in terms of, you know, upheaval, say, on a global plane, of course, you have to deal with 50 new countries, but Russia is the most important, and Russia will take the position of all the things the Soviet Union was involved with. 
whether it's the strategic arms reduction talks, that's for Russia. When it comes to, for example, nuclear proliferation, there's a problem because not all Soviet nuclear material in terms of highly enriched uranium uh, reactors, but especially also missiles, are just in Russia. They, of course, are spread. So the West is very, very keen that Russia somehow gets a grip that anything related formally to the Red Army gets again under the control of Russia. So that entails very complicated negotiations between Russia and Belarus, Ukraine, especially uh, considering also the Black Sea fleets, Crimea problem, uh, and, and Kazakhstan. But in terms of nuclear missiles, everything this Yeltsin is negotiated and it gets into the hands again of the Russians of both strategic and tactical nuclear missiles. Uh, and, um, if, and that entails, you know, of course, special agreements related to the START Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Uh, and START II is signed just at the end of the Bush presidency in the beginning of 1993. So that is important for a sort of sense that we create against certainty and stability. And very interestingly, you know, also Yeltsin is on a major charm offensive, and not just charm offensive, I think he genuinely believes when he uses that language, he wants partnership, he wants, in effect, he says, alliance with the United States and NATO. He speaks at the UN in early 1992 and sort of says, we have ditched tyranny. He's, in fact, making lots of digs at the Chinese. He's saying the Russians sign up to human rights, the Russians sign up to the UN. Here in the UN, the Russians will now represent the former Soviet Union, and we are moving into a new world where we are all partners. He does the same again in Congress, and it's only towards the end of 1992 where there's a first sort of sense that the Russians feel, are they purely orienting to the West or should they also considering orienting to the East, uh, especially also China? Because after all, what is the sense of being Russian? And is Russia turning out to be, Russia doesn't want to be a beggar to the West, you see. And aren't they more or less a junior partner to the United States, where of course you have all this language coming out on the neocon side about the unipolar moment and so forth. So there is then suddenly a sense, you know, who are we? What is it to be Russian? Are we just, you know, imitating, begging? What, what are we doing here when we talk about partnership and democracy? And frankly, that first year is also really hard. Shock therapy in economic terms actually make lives much worse uh, inside Russia. Inflation is through the roof. Uh, they need food aid. They get a lot of support from the West as talk about, you know, joining the G7 especially Germany that wants good relations because it's so scared of an import of instability from the East. And you have to see this, of course, in the context of Yugoslavia imploding and everybody looking on. So it's not like everything is happy in Europe and you have Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and you have South Ossetia conflict and you have tensions in Chechnya. On the former rim of Russia also you have problems. You have questions over minority rights all around Central and Eastern Europe. So not everything is exactly settled and everybody's thinking how do we settle this so there's a lot of money being pumped and know-how into russia but there are questions over privatization laws property laws um, financial institutions who controls where the money goes law and order combined then with sort of a russian self-sense are we just the basket case or who are we so you see the first moment of a turn towards China, just in a sense of power political reassessment to the end of 92. But then 93 is a very chaotic year for Yeltsin. That is the year effectively we see democracy still born. Yeltsin starts ruling by referendum, there's a shelling of the parliament building, and by the end of the year you have elections where you see Shirinovsky, you know, often called, you know, the Russian Hitler, 
really speaking in some ways to the Red Army, very hardline views on, you know, Russian power, Russian near abroad, Russian humiliation, because, you know, the Red Army is withdrawing at this point from the Baltic Republics, from Germany, all those deadlines for 1994 coming up. And um, there's a sort of sense that somehow Russia has been humiliated. And that, that gains traction. And also the sense what's actually happening in Central and Eastern Europe, the old Soviet sphere. Oh my goodness, they're all knocking on the door of the EU, potentially because now they're getting afraid even more of uncertainties inside Russia and of what's happening in Yugoslavia. They're getting nervous, they're looking for an umbrella of security and they're beginning also to look on NATO's door. And then there's a the question, well, what will the West, how will the West react? And of course the West is saying, well, you know, everybody has a free choice and should we really open up? Maybe we should open up. And what is America's role in, in Europe if the Europeans can't even resolve the Yugoslavian wars of secession themselves? So maybe America is needed to be in as a stabilizing force. And before you know it, this almost takes on a life of its own. But I would like to stress Yeltsin's rhetoric remains one of partnership, irrespective of how he behaves inside this country. And really, you know, we don't have law and order inside Russia. We have, you know, terrible economic corruption emerging. This is, you know, this is a time when privatization goes wrong and you see the rise of the oligarchs. There's desperate trying to create some kind of partnership with NATO in view of, you know, an open door policy and partnership for peace and a special uh, NATO-Russia joint council. But of course, at the same time, among those who have this little seed of sense of humiliation, that remains. And there's also a resentment to Western money and to being part of Western clubs where you may be getting controlled. So there's also this sort of returning to what is Russian and that tension between wanting to be integrated, wanting to be respected in the West, but also respected as a world power and wanting to be a world power as Russian. That tension uh, is actually almost inherent uh, in how Russia feels about itself because it is quite clear for all the little bit of toying with China, they don't feel Asian. The people in Moscow don't think about themselves as an Asian power. They think about themselves and they talk about the importance of the status of world power. And for a while, almost, you know, also in this sort of sense of the heady moment of the post-Cold War world, we are, of course, trying to build a better world. Maybe this is all a little bit covered up, but as the 1990s move along and, you know, things in Russia are not really that much improving and the way Yeltsin is running his elections, uh, you know, the problems compound. And by the end of the decade, they effectively come to a head and there's also a coming to a head with the West, not actually over NATO's first enlargement decision in 1997, but over the Kosovo war, when, you know, when it has a humanitarian intervention without uh, UN auspices and without good consultation between uh, Russia and the United States or rather NATO, and it's an out of area action. And these other feelings that I explained have been building up. So what I'm trying to say is once Putin comes in and he makes his manifesto about what is Russian, what are Russian values, we need to go back to the core, the Soviet Union's collapse is the biggest disaster of the 20th century, all these things, it's almost like the bubbling up and the, 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 the combustion that has been there comes to a head when a new person comes into power who also has quite a different background. This is KGB background because remember Putin watched the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet Empire almost 
uh, in a place where it was meant to be strongest. He's not actually inside the country. He never had a feeling for perestroika. He just sees what he worked for had collapsed. And in the 2000s, he sets out first to, it's not actually foreign policy. He wants to get order in Russia. Lots of things that you would say are good. You need law and order. You need to you know, get the economy going again. He focuses a lot on domestic things. And that, from that inner strength perspective, under his second reign later on, he goes on the foreign policy reassertion program, if you so want. I think the it's often understated just the degree to which there was a huge amount of economic dislocation in Russia to the point where life expectancy fell by almost a decade after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Alcoholism was rife, drug use was rife, unemployment yes. was huge. Um, and that was combined with this so this huge sense of social dislocation where you had a system which whether or not people liked it kept them employed, kept the, their life structured, that was completely thrown away. And then on top of all of that, they felt internationally humiliated by the way in which the USA often acted towards towards Russia, like, as you said, intervening places like Kosovo without Russia's approval. And then on top of that, you have this figure of Boris Yeltsin who begins as this populist figure that's incredibly popular in Russia and becomes almost this figurehead of Russian humiliation when you see those famous images, the red-faced Yeltsin drunk at international conferences. That was a sign of this, of this both international humiliation combined with the social dislocation and the social problems that Russia had at the time. Yes. And so was the, really the greatest failure of post-Cold War foreign policy our inability to integrate Russia into some sort of European system which would have given them purpose? And what would have needed to have been done in order to have integrated Russia? Was it a case of allowing Russia to have a greater sphere of influence and also to be more protected from a rapid transition to capitalism, although obviously that was a highly internal matter because what you get in memoirs like George H.W. Bush's memoirs is he is saying, let's not directly be sending American companies into Russia. Let's play this slowly. Let's not immediately globalize and transition Russia and let it have its sphere of influence around its neighboring countries because if we completely humiliate and deconstruct Russia in, in this rapid shock doctrine, then we're only setting it up for it to become a revanchist power in the future. Um, so what would have been needed to have done to stop Russia ending up in the situation that it was in now? Would it have been better to try to capture Russia into the EU institutions that were being built, try and integrate it into the EU? Or would it have been better to say, Russia is its own world power, let it have a sphere of influence where we don't expand NATO, we let it have its feeling of prestige and its role in, in the world community? Which one of those would have been the better option to have solved this, you know, great failure of integrating Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union? I think that I think the word integration is problematic here because if you are a great power, do you want to integrate where there's another great power that is already dictating the terms? Of course you don't. I mean that was the whole point of the bipolar world. You know, the Soviet Union and the America had completely different outlooks and antagonistic national interests. You, I mean, and also when you look now at the so-called multipolarity, and even if you see 
you know, some kind of engagement between Russia and, and China, even that is a very unholy alliance and, and very unstable deep down because there's, you know, various uh, different national interests and also codependencies at stake, which will run their course uh, at some time. And the triangle in any case also isn't uh, particularly uh, stable if you think about this, you know, as a triangular relationship. But, you know, you have to think about, look at uh, simply the EU, look about how Britain feels about being in the EU or rather not being in the EU. When we talk about integration of countries who feel like a great power, if Russia had wanted to join the EU, there was nothing stopping to make an application to the EU. But of course, there's the Aki Communautaire, the EC was just moving to the EU. Remember, even the Eastern European countries to fulfill those criteria had to actually wait out a first round of countries who were effectively ready, namely Sweden, Finland and Austria. And the Eastern Europeans, the first Eastern Europeans wouldn't get in until 2004. So, you know, that was 14 years after their big first uh, transitionary uh, uh, revolutionary elections and, and changes uh, of, of the, of the uh, political system uh, and the economy. And, you know, if Russia had wanted and made an application to join the EU and fulfilled eventually all the criteria, it would have had to also abdicate some sovereignty to Brussels, wouldn't it? So you have to think about that. So that was actually never on the cards. Russia never really in earnest made even the question whether they should join the EU, right? Mitterrand had had this idea of a confederation model with different uh, concentric circles around a very tight German, Franco-German tandem in the middle, and then all the countries who are in the EMU, and then everybody else in sort of some looser rounds, and then uh, Soviet Union, or rather Russia, somewhere on the edge, with America out. But that was kind of a French-led idea, how do we keep the Americans out? But that, of course, disappeared because even for the French, the solution uh, to keep uh, Europe stable and to keep Germany uh, down, if you so want, was to keep America in, in other words, the NATO. And then you have to think about the West's philosophical outlook or the philosophical outlook that even Gorbachev had underwritten, namely the freedom of choice and self-determination. How, if you underwrite to that principle, can you tell smaller countries who have escaped from uh, being satellite states or even from within the Soviet Union? How are you going to tell an Estonian or a Pole that they haven't got free choice to join NATO if they want. Why should the NATO, if it survived, if it served as a way to anchor uh, Germany, and if it's more a political club and a defensive club, I mean, NATO actually has never undertaken an aggression against the Soviet Union or, or, uh, or Russia, right? Uh, why should they not be allowed to join? I mean, this were the discussions happening inside NATO. Is partnership for peace where Russia was a part? Is the North Atlantic Cooperation Council where Russia previously, even the Soviet Union in the first meeting in 1991 was part, um, is that enough? Or actually do we need to categorize between those who really want to be inside and those who are not? And that raised questions of defense stability. And so remember in the first round, the Baltics were incredibly hurt that they hadn't been let in, that Poland, Hungary and Czech Republic only had been let in. But you know, can you, if you subscribe to principles, deny access if it's freedom of choice? You see, that's where even Yeltsin signed up to it. He sort of said, of course, you know, I'm not denying the polls. If they want to join NATO, they can join NATO. Remember when Yeltsin talked about uh, integration or partnership or alliance with the alliance of his NATO, he wanted to join NATO to then rewrite the rules inside NATO. 
But NATO was already, it was, it was plus the changes through the London declarations. And of course, the whole sense was that NATO will not work if you have Russia constantly vetoing, because by nature, Russia as a big country has different national interests than say Portugal or Germany or Britain or, or whatever. Uh, that is, and, and you know, it's difficult to run a club with two elephants in the porcelain shop. That is simply the reality. So that's why I have a problem with that term integrating Russia. It's actually also up to a point, you could say, obnoxious towards the Russians because integrate into what? Into something that somebody else runs? I mean, this is the interesting question with the G7. The Russians, in a status-driven way, wanted to be a member of the G7. The G7 was a big industrial states, a group forged in the 19, 1975 to resolve the world's economic problems. Well, interestingly, China has never asked to be a member of the G7. But Russia has, because it sees that as a sort of Western club where it wants to be part. And remember, to satisfy that status thing, the Germans in particular, because they sought that reconciliation, because they are always sort of the nearest. And remember, think about all these, you know, um, Nord Stream 2, all those German-Russian uh, gas pipeline deals ever since the 1970s because the Germans think, you know, you need diversify and you don't need to just depend on the Middle East or America, you need to get your energy supply from somewhere else and you need to keep the Russians happy. So there's always a sort of awkward sense of cooperation and reinsurance. And the Germans thought you give them the status on the G7 and we resolve some economic matters together. Of course, Russia is not one of the great industrial states, but it was a status thing. But the idea was also if then a club, you can better harness when you are pumping in billions of Deutschmarks into Russia, where that money is actually going. And sadly, we know where it has gone. We know what happened with the privatization of these of the state companies. In fact, that ended up back with the state. So I think it's actually also from, from a Western perspective, and Americans like to talk a lot about that. Either they say, I mean, people are very divided in the States. They say, America had this imperialist expansionist project about the NATO. But when you actually look at the documents, you realize that there was a lot of reticence. In fact, Clinton in his first year couldn't even bring himself to talk about it because he was focused on healthcare and the American economy out of the recession. He had no foreign policy experience. It was some hawks who said we need to do something, but they actually did so in response to German demands because Germany didn't want to be the easternmost NATO state. And above all, because Eastern Europeans in 1993 began to get so anxious by what was going on in Yeltsin's Russia and in Chechnya and in Georgia and those places, that their pressure to join came from the outside to which the West had to react. So I think to talk about a sort of Western expansionist project coming out of the victory of the Cold War is actually a misreading by hindsight to satisfy particular interpretative lines. Just like I think one has to be very careful to talk about the integration of Russia, because for all of Yeltsin's rhetoric, what Russia wasn't seeking was just to sort of be a menial member, uh, a, a minor member uh, in a pre-existing club where you give up sovereignty. If anything, even under Yeltsin, there was a sense, how can Russia assert itself and be respected in its rightful way as a world power? That's what he kept saying. So, Integration is a problematic thing because you could say actually there was a club which is there to this day, the Conference for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the CSCE since the early 90s, the OSCE, that organization. It didn't turn out into a hard security organization, but of course that's where everybody 
is an equal. Russia was always part of the club. But that organization wasn't able to, for example, bring peace to Yugoslavia. It is the conscience of Europe. It is very little else. It does very good soft security things, uh, watching over elections, conflict resolutionary approaches. When it comes to genocidal warfare on the edges of the continent, the question was, how do you go out of area? How do you enforce peace? And then you suddenly realize there's nobody around. Everybody, even in Europe, looks to America. This is a sort of fraught relationship also between Europe and America. Who does the dirty work when things get messy? So in, in that case, given the inevitable economic dislocation that was to occur, it sounds like the fact that Russia would end up reasserting their national prestige and saying all of this was a big mistake, we should never have let it all fall apart, seems almost like it was going to be the inevitable outcome. But we didn't see it. People didn't see it. Remember, there was a sense, the cold was over, we are moving into a better, more peaceful world, we will somehow all adhere to these norms, uh, we will find a way to cooperate, to coexist in a peaceful way, to have cooperative competition, whatever you want to call it. You know, you can have, you know, strategic rivalry and still some economic cooperation. All these terms we also use with China now. But there was definitely much more a sort of sense we had come out of a spirit of cooperation. Uh, yes, of course, there were some Americans who felt, well, it proved the Soviet system was bankrupt, it collapsed, right? Uh, and you could say, yes, some people took sort of, you know, great sense of power out of it. But in terms of managing world affairs, in terms of managing crisis, in the very early days, especially when Yeltsin came to the Yen to speak in 1992, there was a great sense, we talk about partnership, we talk about allies, we talked about creating stability. There's only so much money to go around, but we will try to support. But of course, a, a Western or an international perspective in terms of financial institutions was also, Russia needs to have particular laws so that when you make huge transfers of money, you know exactly how it's invested and how it's being dealt with. And that was just all really chaotic. But there was then the political chaos on top already in 93. So again, everybody then steps back and thinks, hmm, how do we deal with that? And remember, there's also always these phrases, no interference in internal affairs. What is interference and what is aid? And what is aid that is perceived as being obnoxiously delivered? So these are very sensitive things. And I think they genuinely tried both sides if we think about the European picture, in a most sensitive way to deal with face saving. But all these things still showed that because, you know, in a global economy, in a world market, in a way of what, what is happening inside a country, of course, the reality on the ground is that nobody can deny that in even international affairs, in some ways, Russia, the truncated Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union was in that moment certainly America's junior partner. I want to close out the podcast by taking us back to those years right at the end of the 80s and the very early 90s when it seemed like there was really actually a revolution in the way people were thinking in terms of the idea that after 40 years of antagonism between the West and the USSR, that there could be 
a collaborative form of international system. And we now laugh at things like Fukuyama, you know, it's the end of history. Well, turns out that wasn't true. But what that shows was actually a complete shift in the way of people's thinking about the international system. That is tied to this idea of the unipolar moment. And you've spoken a lot uh, throughout this of Germany as as a security partner, as a key partner for peace. You've talked about China and the rise of China. So was there ever really a unipolar moment in the 1990s? Did it actually exist or is it just a figment of our imagination? I would say, of course, in the, in the actual moment of 1992, of course it exists because the Soviet Union has collapsed. The bipolar order also in its potentially novel form of the Bushian New World Order is no longer there. You have simply one, if you so want, empire that has collapsed. You have one ideology that has collapsed and we are moving out of a period, remember in the early 1980s, people were generally scared of nuclear war and the end of the world. That's where all these pacifist movements came from. That's where the green movements also gained traction, you know, fear of nuclear weapons, fear of nuclear Armageddon, fear even of nuclear power stations, and rightly so, look at what happened in Chernobyl in a particular system. It wasn't even the nuclear power per se, but the way the whole thing was run. And so you have to sort of think, you know, there was out of a sense of fear, there suddenly is a sort of release, now we are moving into something better. The interesting thing is that, you know, for all this unipolar moment, if you so want, America at the same time also felt they don't want to be world policemen. They're in a deep recession. They want, they want open trade. Uh, they, they were trying to you know, revamp the gut. They are, they are moving towards a world trade organization. They're thinking about, you know, what are, are we doing with the uh, developing world, you know, in, in a sort of global, uh, global plane. Um, but of course, they're also immediately aware Oh, former Soviet client states, we have problems on our hand. They're just discovering in 1992 that North Korea and South Korea are actually not on the path of unification, but North Korea is having a nuclear weapons program. Um, you have questions over, Sacha was very up upset and worried about whether in Iraq actually you had a WMD uh, program. Um, you are worried about uh, Algeria, you're worried about Syria, you're worried about all sorts of former Soviet clients that you're actually really worried also about nuclear proliferation. So. As soon uh, as that heady moment apparently starts, where we are moving into this rules-based supposed international order, with perhaps America at the helm in that sort of normative way, uh, that begins to evaporate fairly quickly. And actually Europe looks really bad because there was supposedly this hour of Europe where the EC on its way to the EU would somehow manage itself with a common foreign security policy, the crisis in Yugoslavia, and in the end, Britain, France, and Germany couldn't even agree what to do because the Germans would never use military force uh, at that stage and not even not out of area and even uncertain about peacekeeping and the French and the British didn't see eye to eye. So how do you create something under the umbrella of the Western European Union? The CSCE didn't really work. And then you sort of start thinking, well, what are our tools with which we do it? And then it also becomes of who has the capacity uh, to uh, enact any of these norms, because what are norms worth if you don't stand up to them? That's where you have to sort of see why for a while you see American involvement, but you only need to look at Somalia. The first part of the mission in late 1992 still under Bush works fairly well, but the famine doesn't go away and the decomposing state doesn't go away and the failing government. And in the end, you have for Clinton, the complete disaster with that, uh, sorry, with Black Hawk down and America then withdraws. Doesn't, also doesn't make things better, whether it's in or whether it's out. 
So actually, there's this talk already in that period, 1993 onwards, are we actually heading into a new world disorder? Of course, in a new world disorder where, you know, in some ways, the dissolution of the Soviet Union brought also these client states let on the loose doing their own thing. But also, if you now take the long view, you have to think that a humiliated Russia will, as it always has done in history, and that's what you have to say, where were the historians in the 1990s being asked what they know about Russian history? They would have told you, Russia has always this tension in it as a Eurasian state in relation to what are Russian values, how Russia relates to Ukraine, the problems were there for all to see. But everybody was fixated, we are moving uh, into a better world, we are moving uh, into a global economy, everybody's joining the global economy, it's going to be liberal values around economic liberalization will lead to political liberalization, you know, later you have these revolutions popping up, and then you have Oh my goodness, non-state actors, terrorism as well, that needs to be dealt with. That's actually when the shift begins to emerge. Should you push for regime change? That's where the Americans effectively take it the step too far. They start saying, this is what we need to push for, right? And then people start pushing back and saying, well, actually, no, we don't want you exporting your thoughts. We're not interested in, you know, your embrace. We, we choose our own things. And then, you know, as time goes on, you know, let's fast forward. And it's not surprising that you see a revisionist Russia who's going back effectively to its roots, to, its, to the empire period, not the Soviet period, but what was before, the long history. And they're building and, and making their policies and their rhetoric built on history. That's why you see so much history applied in the politics and to rewrite, to justify what it is you are doing. Uh, and you see the Chinese long road to the future because they are future oriented with these horizons of expectations built on something where you will go, what you will achieve and rally the people behind it, the demographic, the economic force to convert it into political and military force. Christina, it's been a really great discussion and we've, I think, covered so many different interesting areas of this transitionary period at the end of the Cold War. And there was so much more I wanted to ask you about the USSR's old clients and, and the way in which you conducted your research, but I think we've run out of time. And I just want to thank you for joining us and giving us all your insights on the period. Your book is Rebuilding the World After 1989, Post-Wall, Post-Square. And I highly encourage people to give it a read if they want to learn more about the things we've discussed today. Thank you very much for this opportunity and fascinating chat. You've been listening to the LSE Cold War podcast with its host, me, Jack Barsumelish. You can follow me on Twitter at jrbm underscore IR theory. Be sure to follow the podcast. We release new episodes every fortnight on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube and the LSE iPlayer. Make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Like, share the podcast and leave a comment or a review so we can hear your thoughts about the episode. Again, I'm Jack Barsumelish and this has been the LSE Cold War podcast. <laughs> <laughs>